First, we're going to consider what is going on in China these days. Pick up any current reporting and you're faced with bad or deteriorating news about the country. Even our own treasurer, Jim Chalmers, offered a good summary earlier this week. In China, they're dealing with slower growth. They've got deflation. There are concerns in their property sector and to some extent in their banking sector. Their exports have slowed as well, he said. And then the important postscript, it's something we're monitoring very closely. It has important, obvious implications for us here in Australia. Now, all sorts of commentators here and in the rest of the Western world are weighing in, suggesting the place has become uninvestable, that it's closing itself off from the world more and more. Others think this is all too bearish. The so-called death of China has been called about 15 times in the last 10 years, as one Sydney analyst, Matthew Haupt, quipped this week. So there are mixed signals, and I'm delighted to welcome a seasoned and respected observer, Chris Buckley, to join us to try to discern them. He's the New York Times chief correspondent. He's lived there for much of the last 30 years, though he is an expatriate Australian. Welcome back to Saturday Extra. Uh, good to be with you, Geraldine. I'm in Taipei these days. Yes, I've I gathered you're in Taiwan, so you can't. Are you not allowed to go back? I know you know, it's been rather vexed with the New York Times and the Chinese government. Uh, can't you set foot there? Uh, not trying for the time being, but happy to be in Taiwan and plenty oh. to new, of news to to cover here as well. And course. you can and you can observe. You think very well from Taiwan, do you? Uh, a bit closer than Sydney, but yes. <laughs> now, this is an economic and political story, this uh, this story of China. You know, given the Xi Jinping regime, they're intertwined. How seriously do you judge the economic problems to be? Well, I think the general uh, message that's coming out of China is that there are a set of uh, uh, serious indicators that the economy is facing troubles and those troubles may come and go, but they're exposing longer-term problems in the economy, which I think yeah, uh, people are beginning to focus more on now that we've had this set of uh, disappointing economic indicators from China. And that's some things like Jim Chalmers was talking about, about debt in the local governments and worries about the banking sector, but also some social issues coming up as well, such as uh, an ageing population and a shrinking workforce as well, which is going to shift and and possibly slow down the rate of China's economic growth in the longer term. So it's near-term problems, but near-term pro- near problems that throw those uh, longer-term challenges into sharper focus than they have been mm. for a long time. But isn't it fair to say that the Communist Party has basically said to people, and that's been their compact with the um, uh, Chinese people, uh, don't you worry about any of that. You know, we will get on with life. We don't want you to have near-term problems and worries um, and, and we will keep delivering to you. Now, if that starts to be interrupted seriously, does that have other implications politically? I think it does, and I think part of the context here is also, uh, of course, China coming out of uh, three years of COVID lockdowns this year. And the government uh, earlier this year did set an economic growth rate of 5%, which was considered uh, pretty modest by Chinese standards, but it looks like they'll have trouble meeting that. So I think part of the problem now in terms of the politics of economic growth is that you know, uh, Chinese people put up with an awful lot over the past three years in terms of lockdowns uh, with that sort of promise that they would be coming out into an economic rebound. But that rebound is s- smaller and much more tepid than um, even economists 
predicted earlier this year. So I think part of what we're seeing now is that sort of that then being amplified into worries about China's longer term prospects among people in China as well, not just uh, economists sitting in Sydney or another capital. Well, that's the question. Is it among China, Chinese people? I mean, other observers like the veteran Professor Willie Lam from uh, Hong Kong University, and also now I think he's got an appointment in America, uh, they're openly asking out loud, and I think this is quite new, and maybe it's affected by the fact that he's got this American appointment, whether the Xi-led party are good, competent economic policymakers. You know, for instance, given their intervention in tech companies. And, you know, he actually he had quite a strong piece the other day um, where he said, you know, uh, that um, people like uh, uh, Mao-like strongmen like Xi, surrounded by sycophantic minions, uh, Xi's famous for laying down grand schemes such as, quotes, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and the Belt and Road Initiative, but he knows little about the nitty-gritty details of basic governance. Is that sort of thing being written widely and questioned in China? Uh, I think one striking thing about uh, the past few months and the discussion about the economy in China is we have seen bolder criticisms of the general direction of economic policy than has been around for a while. And it's not directly taking on Xi Jinping, but there does seem to be sort of bolder criticisms of the decisions that the government has as a whole, has made in the past few years. And that includes, for example, these regulatory crackdowns on uh, the tech sector, uh, uh, online touring companies and so on that had a sort of quite a political edge as well. So we've seen bolder criticism there. And I think one striking thing is that uh, quite a few people are... Well, uh, let me give an example. Quite a few people have been circulating... uh, an article, an op-ed that appeared in the Singapore paper about the Chinese economy. And the headline of it was, you know, you know, the problem is the economy, but the root of the problem is in politics. So I think perhaps more than before, people are ascribing these problems to Xi Jinping's government and saying that uh, the government has miscalculated in a number of ways, uh, in the regulatory crackdown, in not appreciating how um, Xi Jinping's uh, drive to tame the property market would have all sorts of knock-on effects for the rest of the economy and so on. I think there's a greater sense that he bears the burden of responsibility here. And therefore, because people see Xi Jinping as so powerful and so immovable, that adds to mm. the pessimism about where things are going. Well, that was always, that was, that was exactly what people said when he assumed full power. That means you assume a full responsibility. And if it starts to go bad, you're very exposed. Yes. And I think if it comes down to individual officials, I think, you know, you could take any one of them and actually, you know, they can be quite competent people. The the Premier Li Chung, who came to power in, in March, has been very active in trying to restore confidence uh, among private investors in the private sector and seems to have quite a bit of leeway to introduce new policies to do that. I think the other challenge, the other political issue that comes into the economic conundrum for China, though, is that those economic issues, well, uh, you know, essentially we have Xi Jinping in charge of all of these issues and those economic issues are crowded out by a lot of other issues as well. He has a very big national security agenda, which comes up all the time. He's very focused on building up the Communist Party's uh, 
organizational strength as well. There is the challenge of um, dealing with China's isolation from the rest of the world. So it's also a question of how how much time Xi Jinping can give to the details mm. and difficult decisions to be made as well. Um, and the youth unemployment rates are, are a particular, I mean, we could focus on a lot of things, but um, is there any evidence that you can detect from, say, local revolts or property riots, which are always a very good indicator, that young disaffected people are becoming angry? I mean, we, we hear that they're, quotes, lying flat, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming passive, they're withdrawing, they're giving up, a lot of distress apparently among China's young. But if they got angry, that would not be good news for the Communist Party, am I right? That would be not be good news at all. And I think particularly after 10 years of Xi Jinping in power with the build-up of China's uh, security state, censorship, monitoring of online opinion, it is very difficult for that frustration with the government to coalesce into any sort of organised movement or organised movement against the Communist Party. So I, don't, I certainly don't think we're at the stage yet where uh, popular revolts over the economy are a, a serious prospect in the near term. But in the longer term, I, I think the strains from having a sort of a, a large pool of unemployed or disappointed uh, university graduates and young people, that's going to be a worry for the government. And it's going to be one that is going to persist for some time, just given the way in which the economy has been moving. Look, do you think, do you link in any way the disturbances in the economic sector with the purges within the People's Liberation Army? And we've never had a good explanation about those generals losing their places and, and of course, the disappearance of the foreign minister. Um, do you know any more that helps us understand uh, and, and whether it explains this new anti-espionage law that also was introduced, I think, to a sort of general surprise? Right. So the first thing we're talking about here is this very abrupt removal of uh, two commanders at the top of China's um, rocket force uh, a couple of months ago and now. Uh, and uh, the rocket force, of course, is extremely important for China because it's the custodian of China's or, or custodian of nearly all of China's nuclear weapons. So it's very unusual when Xi Jinping makes a big move like this. Uh but do we have any more clarity about what has gone on there and what caused it? Uh, plenty of rumours, but no real explanations. I think it's a pretty long shot that it has anything to do with the economy. Uh, I think all it shows is that when bad news happens, it happens in clusters. And of course, before that, we had the abrupt removal, still unexplained officially, of the Chinese mm. foreign minister, Qin Gong, as well. So we have all of that in the background. I'm sure it's sort of magnifies the anxieties about where policy is headed in, in China, but there's no real direct con connection. No, it's just I think, I think Willie Lamb was saying that if that they do have to, one of the, the links he made potentially was that in the acquisition of new weapons, they have to deal with people from the outside and there was a risk and that there simply has to be a lot of money um, uh, spent by China to actually acquire all these new weapons. And um, there could be a risk of bribery and of, of um, that this could explain that he, he detected a, some genuine concern about the interface between the PLA and um, some outside outside um, operatives, shall we say? Yes. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a number of different theories going around about why they were removed, but the most obvious one 
uh, is some kind of economic corruption. The, the rocket force has been building up uh, pretty quickly uh, because of China's nuclear build-up, but also its build-up of conventional missiles as well. A lot of money sloshing around there, money sloshing around for R&D as well. Uh, so it might be awfully tempting for a commander to you know, to mm. divert some of that or, or misuse it in some way, yes. Look, uh, after years of living there, and obviously you've you know, just got to look at a little bit of a distance, do you detect a sort of creeping isolationism or not? Because as I said, there's all sorts of different attitudes about this. Uh, an Australian businesswoman, Louise McGrath, was quoted in our um, media last week, the head of industry development and policy with the Australian Industry Group. And she felt that um, the place was feeling as if it was cutting itself off. And she quoted a member of her team who said that everywhere she was just constantly observed. She needed to show a passport to go in anywhere. Uh, everything was double-checked, extra photos taken at every airport. She couldn't use her Australian-issued credit card anywhere but at her hotel. Uh, and that it was making members, Australians, going there very cautious. What's your sense of this? Because people can... This can cause, you know, over-exaggerated observations versus people who live there a lot. I noticed Jeff Raby wrote the other day, said it's still very much a, you know, visible Chinese miracle. I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, finding the right balance uh, about what's going on in China can be difficult, especially when you're not there. But uh, to hear from friends in China and friends who've been visiting China, it does feel significantly more isolated than before. So it's not as if people are actually embracing that isolationism, but they do feel more cut off from the rest of the world. Travel has become much more difficult and expensive, especially with the lack of um, uh, full restoration of air flights. And also many few, fewer um, visitors uh, going to China, uh, fewer students staying there, fewer foreign journalists there as well. So I think it does feel very isolated for a lot of Chinese people who are used to a much more cosmopolitan life even a few years ago. So that's been a big shift. Um, whether that's going to persist at the level of isolation we see now is a big question. I think even the government would like things to open up a bit more, but that then begins to rub up against the other things we're talking about, Geraldine, including this sort of air of fear of uh, foreign influence and espionage and foreign threats in general and how that's making people wary about those contacts with foreigners. I'm thinking in particular of, of, of academics and other, you know, Chinese academics and other people who used to have lots of contact with the outside world and, um, you know, visitors from the United States and Australia and other countries who are feeling now that those contacts have become much more attenuated. Uh, and look, just quickly, um, that I noticed, though, that the US Finance Secretary Gina Raimondo was there last week emphasising on a visit that it, the US did not wish to sever economic ties with China. Um, and, and I wonder how much you think a lot of what we're discussing is as a result, though, of the US really turning the screws on China and particularly investment there. Unraveling what's happening with the so-called decoupling of um, China and the United States and the rest of the Western world is, you know, there's, there's different levels to it. Part of it is a sort of uh, a concerted uh, outcome of what the United States in particular has been doing in discouraging uh, uh, its uh, you know, US tech, tech firms from 
providing certain technologies to China, particularly semiconductors. Part of it is also companies themselves thinking, well, just given the state of relations between China and the Western bloc, where should we be putting our investments? Where should we be putting our people? Where should we be putting our future? I think generally it's very few companies that would be thinking about entirely pulling out of China. Mm. But I do think you see a wider pattern where China's much more hedging their bets now, perhaps um, setting up factories in Southeast Asia, in India, in Bangladesh and so on, uh, looking for places where they can balance their footprint in China with a footprint in the rest of the world. And that seems to be a trend that's not going to shift simply because of uh, any particular decisions that are coming out of Washington that sort of also reflects a general pessimism about the direction of China-US mm. relations. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Very good to chat to you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Geraldine. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.